0: We find our text from two different passages from the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verse 4, and chapter 3, verse 20. So, Revelation 2, verse 4 the Lord Jesus, writing to the church of Ephesus, says, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. And then to turn to Revelation 3, verse 20. Where Lord Jesus writes, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Or also translate it, here I stand, I stand at the door and knock. Brothers, sisters of our Lord Jesus Christ. The book of Revelation is you can say Christ's letter uh, to his uh, church. It's also clear when you look at the very beginning of uh, this uh, le- or this book where the opening words are in 1 verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus is writing, he's speaking uh, to the church that he has established. If you continue reading in chapter 1, there you will notice that John sees one like the Son of Man, who is Jesus Christ, standing among the seven golden lampstands. Those seven lampstands represent the seven churches that were found in Asia Minor. And you come to chapter 2 and chapter 3. And in these chapters, the Lord Jesus now addresses each one of his churches individually. In each letter... He commends them for their strengths, but he also reprimands them for uh, their weaknesses. And when he addresses these churches, just keep in mind that he's speaking here as as a bridegroom who is concerned about the well-being of his bride. And he's not afraid to speak openly or to speak honestly uh, to his bride when she betrays his love. At the same time, he also speaks to her with great love. And tenderness and compassion. And ultimately, the aim that the Lord Jesus has is that one day he may be able to present his bride to, to the Father in heaven without any spot or blemish. And therefore, at the very end of, or near the end of this, this letter in chapter 19, uh, there we read about the wedding of the Lamb and that it has come. And so you see, everything in in the book of Revelation is now leading to that great day that the bridegroom will come and take his bride, that is his church, and the great wedding feast will be there. And so in this book, the Lord Jesus reveals that the whole history of this world and the history of his church rests in his hands. And that he's now directing everything to that day when he's going to come back, when he will return as the great bridegroom, and he will take to himself his bride, that is, his church. And so the book of Revelation really begins with seven personal letters to seven churches in Asia Minor. Keep in mind that these are real churches. And that the Lord Jesus Christ is addressing real situations in each of these churches as, as he sees it from where he is in heaven at the right hand of his Father. And he doesn't only see what we might see uh, on the surface, but when he looks at his churches, he also sees what lives in the hearts of his people. And that's a good thing for us to, to also keep in mind, that the Lord Jesus Christ uh, continues to, to take the same kind of interests in each one of his churches even today. That means that today he also knows not only what we're doing on on the surface, but he knows the spiritual condition that lives in the heart of each one of us. And then also keep in mind that when we read these letters, in a certain way, these seven letters really represent every church of the Lord Jesus Christ throughout the ages. And what Christ discovers in these churches, He continues to discover even today in His churches, wherever it may be gathered in the world. And that means that the same warnings He gives then also applies to His church today. And it means that the same encouragement that He gives to His church back then is also intended for His church today. That is for us. And therefore, we need to reflect on what the Lord Jesus Christ is indeed writing here in, in these letters for our very own life. This afternoon, as we look at our, our text, I will be looking at this part of Revelation in a little bit more of a holistic way. For when you look at these letters, there's, there's also a pattern that you find. We're dealing with the first and the last letter, but actually you could also in, include also the middle letter to the church at Ty- Tyre. And in these letters, you're going to get a sense that the Lord Jesus is writing as a a bridegroom to his bride. And the middle letter, Tyra, there, he actually says this I have against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel. So he's upset that uh, they are uh, acting in an adulterous way towards him. And so as we read these letters, keep in mind that he's writing then, about his concern for his bride. But he doesn't only write about his concerns, but he also speaks tenderly to his bride so that we might come to him and that we might also experience that joy of being his bride. And so this afternoon, I may proclaim to you God's word under this theme. The Lord Jesus speaks with tender love to his bride, the church. Or a theme, the Lord Jesus speaks with tender love to his bride, the church. And we look at two things. First of all, that he says to his church, do not forsake your first love. And secondly, he says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. The Lord Jesus, first of all, writes to the church at Ephesus, and he says to them, I know your deeds. I know your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people. I know that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and and that you have have found them to be false. I've seen how you have persevered and how you have endured hardships for my name, and that you haven't grown weary and all of that. And then even adds in verse 16, he says, and you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans. There must have been some kind of a sect that was teaching certain false doctrines. You hate the practices of those Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And so, as you read these words of the Lord Jesus directed to this congregation, you say, you know what? There's not a whole lot to dislike about this congregation. You might even say, you know, if every congregation was as diligent and as hardworking as, uh, the, the, as the believers in Ephesus in the way they serve the Lord, that would just be wonderful. Remember that Paul had, had also warned already some time before when he had met with the elders in, this, in the congregation of, of Ephesus in Acts chapter 20. Acts 20, 28 through 31, there, there he also uh, warns them. He says, keep watch over yourselves and over all the flock because I know that after I leave, as savage wolves will come uh, among you and there will even be members uh, among you who will distort the truth. Therefore, Paul says to them, he says, always be on guard. Well, when you now read the letter of the Lord Jesus uh, to the church of Ephesus here in Revelation, it appears that the church in Ephesus heeded the warning of the Apostle Paul. They were very careful to discern false teachings and to promote only the truth. And the Lord Jesus himself, he commends them for them. He says, that's a good thing. I like what you're doing. And someone noted they were energetic in their service to the lord they were patient in their suffering they were orthodox in their faith but but jesus says i have this against you you have forsaken your first love now there are some who suggest some commentators who suggest that the lord jesus here is is speaking about uh, their love towards their, either their fellow believers or even for uh, their, their neighbors. And so that's, possible, that's a possible way in which you might interpret what he means by you've lost your first love. But keep in mind that here it's the bridegroom who is speaking to his bride. And so the Lord Jesus here is dealing with the believer's relationship to himself. And so what he's really saying here, he says, in, in your relationship with me, you have forsaken your first love. His complaint is really that they have entered into a loveless relationship with him. Well, you see what happens in so many religions, different kinds of religions in the world, but also happens with the Christian religion in many parts of the world. And is that religion just becomes a cultural thing in the life of people so you have Muslims, you have Sikhs for, for whom religion is just, you know, a, a way of life. And the same danger exists for Christians. We think about being a Christian as, as just a, a way of life, as something that we do. There are certain cultural expectations, and as Christians we, we try to maintain those expectations, and, and we defend them by, by saying, well, we have to do the right thing. And so we maintain right beliefs. We maintain correct doctrines. We vigorously protect those beliefs and doctrines just as the Ephesians did by warning against false prophets and against false teachers. But Christianity can also become a way of life. Right there, so in our way of thinking, there's a right way and there's a wrong way to live. And we expect everyone in the church to to live according to those moral and those ethical rules that we have been able to set down. And so we can even pride ourselves in in keeping all the pure doctrines and all the, the right teachings of the scriptures. We can take pride in following all the laws and the moral teachings that the Lord gives to us in the Bible. And yet when the Lord Jesus looks down upon us with his, we read about his penetrating eyes, then often he, he sees that his people are people who have lost their first love. Now you notice here the Lord Jesus does not say that their desire to maintain pure teaching and pure preaching and their desire to live moral lives according to God's will is wrong. No, in fact, he commends them for them, and he says, you know, I love that about you, but, but when he looks into the heart of his people, he, sees, he says, what I see is that you're doing these things out of a wrong motive. You're doing those things not because of your love for me. I, who am your bridegroom, and so you see, beloved, that, that true religion is not in the first place about doing all the right things. But true religion in the first place is about entering into a living relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is out of that living relationship that you have with Christ that all those other things that Christ commends here about the Ephesians, that those things now begin to flow from your life. We are to be jealous for pure preaching and for upright and immoral way of life because of our love for our Savior, Jesus Christ. But Jesus says you have lost your first love. Uh, you might know what happens sometimes when you first enter into a, a relationship, a love relationship. You know, when a man and a woman, when they first uh, meet and they begin to care for each other, they, they love each other very much. You know that, because they always want to be together. And when they are together, uh, they're always paying close attention to each other, and they're talking about all kinds of things. And they're even willing to make sacrifices to to see each other. Well, they'll make all kinds of excuses at, at home, or they will make excuses at work in order that they might get away, in order that they can be with the one that they love. And when they're together, they're completely attentive to each other's needs. One person only needs to to say a word, and it's already done. But then they get married. And after some time, that first love begins to, to wane or to waver. Man and woman are not always as attentive to each other anymore, as attentive to each other's needs. But, oh, they're still faithful to each other in the sense that they're still carrying out the responsibilities that are expected in their relationship. Well, the husband still takes care that he has income in order to provide for the needs of his family, and he is faithful in doing the chores around the house. And the wife is making sure that the things around the household is indeed being looked after. But often it can begin to feel more like a a duty than something that is being given out of love for one another. That first love in which there was that, that close personal relationship can so quickly begin to fade. And when that happens, it will then also take away the joy of the relationship. Yeah, the husband and wife, well, they, they can continue because they're committed to, the, to their promise. And, of course, that's a good thing. But, beloved, but that's not really what God intended for marriage. Marriage is a personal bond of love. A bond of love in which husband and wife joyfully, joyfully assist each other because of their love for one another. And that beloved is also what Christ seeks from us in his church. So we can easily also become just like the Evegians who were so busy with the things of the church. They're working hard to to maintain the the purity of doctrine and of teaching. They're willing to suffer patiently at the hands of their persecutors in in order to maintain their Christian lifestyle. But they had lost, Jesus says, you've lost your first love. For me. And so their religion becomes more of a duty than a, than a love for the Lord. And so they, they came to the worship services out of a sense of duty, and then rather out of an eagerness in which they might come and worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And they might read their Bibles. Now, of course, they didn't have Bibles like we have to, to, today, but, but if they would get together and read their Bibles faithfully, but, uh, but they would then do it out of a sense of duty rather than experiencing experiencing that word of God that they read as a love letter of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Christ also warns us, beloved, that our religion does not just become for us a sense of duty, that sometimes we resent in our heart, but that we serve the Lord our God faithfully because of our love for Him. And when you serve the Lord Jesus Christ out of love, then you will also be careful to to speak uh, to others about the Lord's will. You'll be careful that you will not speak about the Lord's will in a loveless way. And then you come back to what I said earlier about how some commentators say about this love. And indeed, there's an element also in which we need to show love towards our fellow believers, even towards our neighbors you know what easy when we speak to our neighbors how easy it is to speak in a loveless way, when we just tell them uh, that uh, they shouldn't do what they are, they are doing. Right in our witness to the unbeliever, we can speak it in that loveless way when, when we just speak in a condemning way, and we speak and we then also we harshly judge them with their words, with our words, when we say, "You know what? That's not right. That's wrong." Well, you know a, a true love for Christ. And when there's a true love for Christ in our hearts, that will also cause us to to speak to others in a loving way. First of all, about our love for Christ. but also about our desire that they too may experience the love of Christ in their own life. And so our Christian faith, then, beloved, is not in the first place about living the right way. It's not about living the right way in the first place, but it must always be about living in a loving relationship with Jesus Christ. And then out of that love for Christ, we will live as a faithful bride of the Lord Jesus. And so if we lost that first love, how do we return to that first love? Well, Jesus actually encourages his church, his people to do three things. In verse five, to return to that first love. That's in chapter two. First of all, he says, remember, Remember the height from which you have fallen. So the first thing he says, remember the love that you first experienced when when you first came to know me, and and when you had that desire to to serve me from the heart. Then secondly, he says, repent. Repent means that, that you are truly sorry for, for what you have done and you realize how you've not given your heart to the Lord out of love anymore, and you make this commitment in repentance that you will again return to that first love. And the third thing that Christ says, that means that you now again, you do the things that you did at first when you entered into that love relationship with me. I may say, well, what might that look like, for example, in a marriage relationship? Well, in our marriage relationship, it might mean this that we remember what we had when we first entered into the relationship and how we enjoy that time to, that we had uh, together and how we were there willing to help each other and to assist each other joyfully in any way that we could. And it means that then, when we realize that we've lost that, that we then repent. Truly repent, it means that, that I really realize that what's going on is not really right. And that I now make this commitment in my heart that I will change. And then, in the third place, that we will then again go back to the way things were when, when I was truly attentive to my husband, when I was truly attentive to my wife, and when, I really cared about, when we really cared about each other, and we were looking out how we could assist each other in everything. And beloved, that is what also then needs to happen over and over and over again in our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. We also know that in a relationship of love, it's not just that we constantly get better and better, but it's like a roller coaster ride in which sometimes uh, we do things out of love and other times we fall away from that first love. And so we need to understand too how easy it is to become complacent as we turn away from that first love for our Lord. And it happens. And we become so very busy with our own lives. Right? we got work to do, and, and we're so busy at work. Sometimes we're overwhelmed by what, what we need to do at work. And then we have to deal with our family. Well, we have busy families, and, and we hardly have time to keep on top of that besides our work. Oh, and, then, and then there's church, and all the activities that we're involved with in the Church. And then perhaps we might be involved in other activities within the broader community in which we are living. And and then we want to enjoy life a bit too yet, so we want to be able to do our enjoyment, whether we play our hockey or or go to some sports event or or go to some other concert or whatever it is that we want to do, or whatever it is that that we might find enjoyment in our lives. And So all those things can so overwhelm our lives that, that we lose that first love for the Lord. Well, beloved, when you truly cultivate that love for the Lord God, it means that we can't take a different approach to our life. It's an approach in which we, first of all, there is an eagerness in our heart in which we want to spend time with the Lord. And how do you spend time with the Lord? Well, you do that by reading His Holy Word, because that's where the Lord comes, and that's where He meets with you. That's where He speaks to you. And when the Lord speaks to you in His Word and you eagerly you, you, you listen to what He has to say, then there will also be an eagerness to spend time praying. For you want to also have that, that living relationship with your Lord. And we only have that when, when you speak to Him, and we only can speak to Him through our prayers. And it will also mean that there will be an eagerness to, to enjoy worshiping together the Lord with His people every week. And there will be an eagerness to, to speak also to others about your love for your Lord and about your great bridegroom, Jesus Christ. And so, beloved, here in this letter, the Lord Jesus warns us and He also encourages us to be busy cultivating our love for Him. And he sees how we are so prone to let go of that first love. As a husband and a wife can, can never become complacent about their love for each other. It also means so we can never either become complacent in our love for our Lord Jesus. Because, beloved, once we become complacent. And once our first love is lost. They know how difficult it is to also return back to it again. And although it may be difficult, yet it can be done. It can be done. Why? Because we're not the only one in the relationship. Our Lord is a faithful bridegroom who always loves us, and he loves us in a perfect, in a, with a perfect love. And he reveals that love also in his last letter to the church at Laodicea. There he says to his church, he says, here I am. I stand at the door and, and knock. Now, these words of the Lord Jesus is, is often used in the context of mission work, in which uh, people say that the Lord Jesus, well, he's knocking at your door, at the door of your heart, and, and he's asking that you let him in. But beloved, the Lord Jesus is not speaking here in a missionary context. But here the Lord Jesus is, is addressing himself uh, to his church, the bride. There's already a relationship here between Christ and his church. And so Christ says to his bride, He says, Here I am. Christ says, I'm not far away from you, my bride. I always stand right next to you, even though you may not always realize it. In fact, I stand at the door and I knock. You see, beloved, Christ is not like the silent husband who never says anything to his bride. And he's not the kind of a husband who keeps his distance from his wife because somehow that's easier to, to deal with the relationship. No, he's right there, standing at her door, constantly knocking for her attention. The Lord Jesus conveys something here, beloved, of his tender love and his care before his bride. He speaks these words, remember, to the church at Laodicea. It's the very last church that he addresses. But you also notice when you read through this letter that this is the only church the only church out of the seven in which the Lord Jesus does not have anything good or anything kind or anything uplifting or encouraging to to say uh, to this congregation. He says in in chapter 3, verse 14, he says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either one or the other. And then he says, and because you are lukewarm, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Well, as you listen to those words of the Lord Jesus, it helps us to understand, first of all, uh, something about the city of Laodicea. You see, Laodicea was a very extremely rich city. It was situated also at the crossroads of of trade. We, We know from secular history that uh, when an earthquake around the year 60 A.D. Uh, came and, and leveled the city, that the people in the city, they, they refused financial help from uh, the Roman emperor because they prided themselves on the fact that they had the ability and they had the money to rebuild the city with their very own wealth. And this city was, was known for, for three things. In the first place, it was known for the many banks. And these were apparently very extremely, very rich banks. Secondly, it was also known for its clothing industry, especially its its high quality. And there were sellers of purple cloth, which was the best cloth available, something that only princes and rulers could afford. And in the third place, it also had an excellent medical school, and it was known for its eye salve that was good for weak eyes. That's also why Jesus makes reference uh, to to the salve for the eyes in order that they might see again. And so Christ's message clearly reflects uh, uh, that the moral uh, climate that was found within the city itself was also affecting the believers in this congregation. And so the people in the city reflected the attitude that, you know, we are rich, we are self-sufficient, we don't need anybody else's help. And then you understand the words of the Lord Jesus in verse 17 when he when he the Lord Jesus then also shows how that attitude is now reflected within this church when he says, And you say, you say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. You see, this attitude of self-sufficiency there in the congregation in Laodicea also made them lukewarm towards the Lord Jesus. You know, when when the believers, when when they felt that they were materially and spiritually self-sufficient, well, then they never saw any real need for the aid and the help of the Lord Jesus. Who needs the Lord Jesus if, if you have everything that you want in your life? Who needs the Lord Jesus when, when you feel that you have enough money and you have enough wealth and there's that medical, the best medical care available to you? Why would you need the Lord Jesus in your life? You see how this earthly sufficiency often leads people to believe that they don't need the Lord Jesus. And that doesn't mean that these believers in Laodicea were somehow denying the Lord Jesus. Right, the members of this church, they still called themselves Christians, and they still worshipped Jesus Christ. We also know that they gave a, a very large material uh, gift of money uh, for the persecuted believers in, in Jerusalem as part of that collection that was taken for the believers in Jerusalem. But from what the Lord Jesus writes, we don't really get any impression that this church here somehow uh, rejected the truth of the gospel. We don't get any sense either that they were accepting false teachings and doctrines. But they become lukewarm. Lukewarm so that Jesus says you're neither hot nor cold about your relationship with me. And so we love it. What happens when you lose that first love for the Lord is you begin to slip into a comfortable mode. In which you no longer have any passion for the Lord. It also happens in our marriages. Losing that first love means that you begin to lose also the passion that should belong to the relationship that you have. When we lose that, that passion for Christ, then you become lukewarm. And when you're lukewarm, you no longer have the motivation, you no longer have that desire to serve the Lord. And when that motivation isn't there, well, then compromise has just become a way of life. We're ready to take the easy way out of serving the Lord our God. Without passion for Christ. Beloved, then where is the motivation going to come from for you to pray to Him? Without that passion for your Lord, why should you be busy studying His Word? doesn't mean a whole lot to you, does it? Without that passion, why would you go and faithfully attend the worship services? And why would you go give him the first fruits when you could use it for something else? And without that passion for your Lord? And where's your motivation to stand up for the honor of your Lord when when your boss or your friends pushes you to do that which you know is against the will of God? What happens when we are lukewarm is that we, exclude, that we begin to exclude Christ from every part of our life. And beloved, if you don't have any passion for your Lord Jesus Christ, also in this culture in which we are living today, the danger is that we will just simply go along with the ideas and the ideals of our society. When you are neither cold nor hot, the result is that you will avoid conflict because you don't have the passion to stand up for your bridegroom. You see what the Lord Jesus Christ wants to see from His bride? Beloved, is that, is that we have a zeal. We have a passion for Him as our Lord and as our Savior. Now, passion and zeal does not mean that we need to act like zealots. It doesn't mean that you have to become fanatics. About, everything, about, which, about whom everybody around us would say, you know, look at that person. He or she is crazy and isn't sane anymore. That's not what it means to have passion. Passion for Christ does not mean either that believers need to always put this smile on their face, that they are somehow never sad, or that they're always waving their hands in, in the air to reveal uh, their, their feelings. The passion and zeal that Christ seeks is a wholehearted commitment to Him in which we love to serve Him from the heart. In which we're willing to stand up against all falsehood in order that we might promote the honor and the glory of His name. Beloved, it means that we cannot silently stand by when the honor of our Lord Jesus is being attacked by others. It means that you then also will come to his, fence, his defense because you feel such a strong commitment to your bridegroom, realizing he is the one who has saved me and gives me the hope of eternal life. And so the question really is then, how do I maintain that zeal, and that passion for my Lord in my life? Well, beloved, you know that every relationship... Uh, In every relationship, there are two parties. And here we have a relationship with the Lord Jesus. And He is the bridegroom who comes to us and and who says to us His bride, here in this letter, He says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. And so you see, beloved, the solution to this lukewarmness in our lives is not by trying to somehow jack up warm and strong emotions within our heart. Today, so much of the contemporary worship is about stirring up the emotions of people so that when they go home, they will feel so much better because they have felt a high during the service. But you know, when, when that is the goal... Then there are also so many Christians who lose hope and so many believers who feel guilt when they cannot stir up that passionate feeling that they think they should have because everybody else is talking about it. Keep in mind that also a lot of what passes for worship today is nothing more than a manipulation of the the emotions and the feelings of people. And such worship, beloved, the best is counterfeit worship. But take some time to read the Psalms. You read through the Psalms. Then you get a much more realistic idea uh, about the emotions that God's people are going through in their lives. Right? The Psalms express emotions, yes, of joy and happiness when, when you hear them singing, Hallelujah! Because they praise and they magnify the almighty God of heaven and earth. But then you come to the next psalm. And there the psalmist speaks about sadness. Talks about crying. Weeping. About the shedding of tears. And you go on a few more and then a few psalms later you read the psalmist and he's crying out in despair as God's people are enduring some great hardship in their life. You see, beloved, what the Lord Jesus is looking for is, is not at all as people are plastering a smile on their face. What He's looking for is not that we're always jubilantly, jubilantly expressing happy emotions. No, there are also times. God, As God's people, that we cry and we weep and we shed tears. And there are times that, that we deal with despair in our heart. See, beloved, a, a Christian life is also an authentic life. An authentic life in, in which we experience all the emotions of this life. But what sets the psalmist apart and what should also set all Christians apart, also us apart today, is that we look to the Lord Jesus in faith and we cry out to Him from our heart. See, that's the relationship that the Lord Jesus is also seeking with us. It is a genuine relationship in which we look to Him with our heartfelt faith, trusting that He is indeed my faithful bridegroom in whom I may put my complete trust. That means, beloved, that you may go to Him in your joy. You may also go to him in your sadness, and you may cry out to him in the midst of your despair. And when you do that, now what does he say? He says, "Here I am. I stand at the door and knock." You see, he's like the faithful husband who's always ready to help his wife, he cares for us so deeply. He's like the husband that you read about in the Song of Psalms, in in the Song of Songs chapter 5. You read about the husband who comes to his wife in the middle of the night and he knocks at her door. And he calls out, open to me my sister, my darling, my love, my dove, my flawless one. Knocks at her door. And he wants to be with her because he loves her. And he speaks to her about his love and those endearing words. But how does she react? Well, she acts in a lukewarm manner towards him. She says, and remember she's in bed, she says, I've taken off my robe. Must I put it on again? I've washed my feet. Must I soil them again? Must I walk across this dirty room and get my feet dirty just to open the door for you? it's not convenient right now my dear come back some other time and so for a moment she cares only about herself and thinks only about her own needs don't bother me my husband It's not a good time for me to get up and open the door for you and then and then something must have happened as she thought through what she did and she begins to, to realize what she has done to her husband, who she realizes loves her so dearly. And realizing her own selfishness, her heart goes out to him again. And she jumps out of bed. And quickly she goes and she opens the door for her beloved. But here in that particular vision, in that particular poem, she is, he is gone. And then she goes out, and she desperately, she looks for him throughout the city. But, beloved, there are times that we do not always appreciate the relationship that we have with the Lord Jesus Christ. But, beloved, that doesn't mean that the Lord Jesus ever abandons us. He never abandons you. No, he comes. He says, here I am. And he knocks at our door. And when he knocks, he also leaves behind a message of love for us as that man did here in in the Song of Songs when he left behind the perfume on the door handle. That was a subtle message of his love. And remember, beloved, as you read these words, also here in Revelation, remember that the Lord Jesus is speaking to his church, and what he's doing is he's leaving for us this tender message of his love. And he invites us to, to open the door and he says, And I will come in and I will eat with you and you with me. You see, here the bridegroom invites us to a, a wonderful meal of fellowship with him. And therefore, beloved, do not forsake your first love. But listen. Listen to the tender love of your Savior, Jesus Christ, as He speaks to you also here in these words in Revelation. And remember, He will always be with you, for He promised, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. And so what a joy, beloved, to to open that door to fellowship with, with your Lord. May that then also be your greatest joy. May it be your greatest passion to serve your great bridegroom, Jesus Christ. Amen. We'll sing together.